This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards mini masterclass with me, James Roy. I am your host. As always, and I'm talking today to Fiona Murphy, who is, um, you're a bit of a frequent flyer with Westwards, aren't you, Fiona? You've done workshops for us, and and um, you were recently in our Daffodil Cottage program. Yeah, happy to be on board the plane of Westwards. It's a, it's a good plane to be on board. So tell us a little bit about your work primarily. Um, you've, you've written memoir, you've written fiction and various other things and articles and so forth. That's how you make your living. Tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, really it's a mixed bag approach. I, when I first started writing, I was very much focused on fiction and then I discovered there's so many wonderful things in nonfiction and that really went on the front burner for many years. Um, it's a lot easier working in nonfiction because you're starting from somewhere. So I tend to do a lot of critical reviews of um, albums or books or profiles of people and interviewing. So on that freelance side, um, a real mixed bag. In terms of longer form work, I've focused in the last few years on memoir and really bringing in that research element with um, journal articles, interviews with people and diving deep into topics that people might find otherwise boring, but for some reason I'm obsessed with. Such as what? Can you give, give us an example? Um, I am really obsessed with hearing loss from my own experience with it and a lot of people um, are taught that hearing loss is just a lack of ability to hear anything um, and it just originates in the ears as that's kind of the 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 eyes see the nose smells the ears hear is Mm -hmm. kind of what we're taught and um, that's something that I believe for many years until I really started to question my own experiences of deafness Um, and I tend to use a lot of other senses to help navigate the world um, because it's really about information gaps and how do I fill them in so whether I'm parsing someone's expressions to get a sense of, okay, I haven't caught every word they've said, but what's in their posture, their tone, their facial expressions, that might give me a bit of a clue. Um, The risk of giving maybe a clumsy kind of um, analogy of what you're talking about is is a little bit like when you're at a a party where the, the noise is very loud and someone says something to you and you you don't quite hear them say so just nod and smile and it turns out they've told you something really kind of distressing or, or your, your own and you're response. smiling. Been, yeah, yeah, your, your own response has been quite off beam. Is that is that a good um, example of what you're talking about? Or I, I've thing? learned a lot of tips and tricks to try and avoid that. Um, hmm. a, a lot of open-ended questions. So if I really miss what someone said and I haven't caught it, instead of pretending, I usually ask, tell me more about that. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you expand on that? Rather mm. than doing the the novice mistake of being like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that, that sounds, sounds pretty right. good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but one thing in terms of an example that I use in my memoir is around kind of environmental 
feedback. So for instance, I don't have directional hearing. So when the sirens are going for uh, a cop car or an ambulance, and if I'm walking and I'm like, okay, I don't want to walk in front of a speeding vehicle. What I tend to do if it's a busy street, I see where everyone's looking and then that gives me a really good clue. So I'm relying on other people's ability to detect where sound is coming from. I look for their faces, where they're turning towards, and sure enough, that's where the flashing lights are coming up the road. So it's using lots of tips and tricks to kind of figure out um, how to fill in the gaps. Hmm. Okay, so this kind of leads us into the, the topic I was hoping to talk with you today. And, and I have to admit, it's a, it's a, it's a term that we've all heard and used in the last few years. It was a term that was coined. I can't remember the name of the lady who first coined it, but it's the term own voices. And I, I've been doing some research and I understand that WNDB, which is We Need Diverse Books, the nonprofit, they no longer use the term own voices because they say that is a vague marketing term and has created potentially unsafe situations for authors and illustrators who choose not to share part of their identity, whereas other other organisations have gone, no, we're all in on the own voices thing. Can you help us and give us a, a bit of a rundown on what own voices is about? Yeah. Any, anyone absolutely. who hears the term own voices and goes, okay, what is that? I think I understand, but I'm not quite clear. The first thing to say is it's a live conversation. There's a lot of opinions, a lot of perspectives, and I hope that people are just sort of seeking guidance and are engaging in the conversation. So it's own voices uh, can be perceived as a checklist. And if we just follow the checklist, then everyone will be happy and feel included. But that's not what identity should be about. Um, so to well, come back to... Is very intersectional, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I can speak from my own experience with confidence. If I was asked to review a manuscript um, that features characters who are deaf or hard of hearing, I would be in a conversation with the publisher or the writer to really clarify what I can provide. And it's only my own experience and I would really encourage them if they want to have a really robust reading they should be seeking to engage two or three other people with diverse experiences as well and that really comes down to having really good process and protocol in the industry it has become a little bit of a tick box that people have of like oh we've done the sensitivity read tick but often it's right at the end of the publishing process it's not remunerated and the person's given very little time to with the text and really no recourse to provide feedback because it's popped right at the end of the publishing process and they've pretty much typeset the book. So it's kind of um, more of a gesture than meaningful engagement. So if publishers and publishing houses do want to um, ensure that they're putting the best products out there because that's essentially what it is in publishing. They're selling products. They really should be engaging with communities really early in the piece. And that's really my kind of position with own voices and sensitivity reading is I prefer authenticity as a keyword. 
it's because sensitivity reading gives the impression that automatically the community or the minority group um, are sensitive, quote, about the subject and it's a touchy subject, yeah. whereas really we do want to have that um, diverse representation in books and novels. We don't want people to be shy of including things. But often people include things without doing research and without consultation. So they essentially just make things up mm. and just kind of go off what they think they assume um, an experience is like. So really um, authenticity reading and getting it in early is saving people from making embarrassing mistakes, perpetuating stigma and getting stories out there that are robust and have substance to it. So it's kind of flipping the process on the head. Things are happening at the moment, which is great that there's that acknowledgement that there should be diversity, but it's still tacked right on the end of the publishing process. So there's things aren't um, as meaningful as they could be. Do you think there's been a, um, do you think there's a, we're on some sort of, um, own voices curve. What I mean by that is it's, it seems quite clear that um, on certain kinds of diversity, such as race, language, culture, it's assumed that the own and, and um, sexual identity and so forth, it's kind of assumed that, that that's an own voices lay down misere that you that you know you immediately seek sensitivity reading or whatever for, the, for those things or don't even go there. But are other other kinds of diversity brushed aside when they shouldn't be? For example, is 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 the hearing loss um, as as a form of diversity? Is that one that is swept aside? For example, I think it has been historically. Um, again, it kind of comes back to we're all taught about hearing loss, so we all kind of reckon we know exactly what it's like. Of like, oh, you can't hear anything, so that obviously quote obviously means this this and this but that's where mistakes come in and it's not a true or interesting representation because you're just hinging on stereotypes and stereotypes tend to be cliches and that's actually crap writing cliches are things that we're trying to avoid mm. and having consultation means that you're becoming a better writer it doesn't mean that there's 20 cooks in the kitchen and you're all co-designing a book but it means that you're not relying on stereotypes or cliches to create a meaningful story um, so it does put more responsibility on a writer to step up but I think the responsibility should also be on the publishing houses to help guide emerging writers through the process as well as established writers of saying hey we want to create products that are actually good of a higher quality and they're not cliches what can we do to make that process better and different let's get consultation in let's remunerate people in a meaningful way and ensure that it enhances the product rather than quote becomes a problem at the end so when people say things like you know a good story is a good story anyone should be able to tell that story but Basically, it sounds like what you're saying is they're they're ignoring the part of your advice, which is it's got to be authentic, not just ticking a box that, that says that you've checked with people that it's okay to tell this story, right? Yeah, and I think it really comes back to the fundamentals of a writer. 
what are you trying to explore? What is the why of your story? Um, because it's all very well and good to have a sense of um, exploration, but at what cost? So if you are writing about sensitive or complex things, a mature writer will go, yeah, this is a bit outside of my scope here. What am I going to do in the research phase? What am I going to do to ensure that I tell a bloody good story and I um, don't embarrass myself by making mistakes? Because um, I think there's a perception that writing is a solo job, but the reality, it, it isn't a solo job. We're kind of responding to the world and what we see and understand, even if you're writing sci-fi or fantasy, you're um, going to be engaging with different complex things. And being across as many things as you can is great, but knowing you don't have to become an expert. There's already experts out there. It's just um, including people in a conversation. And the inverse is true. So if somebody um is from a marginalized experience they should be allowed to explore a, a wealth of creativity they shouldn't just have to write um in a narrow constraint of their experience um because it's quite often white non-disabled individuals quote get to write about everything mm. but own voices well, they're encouraged to write about their expertise and it's like, oh, well, shouldn't they get to write fantasy, sci-fi, anything that they want to and follow the same process of consulting, engaging, collaborating, creating something that's a bloody good product. So how does it work with something like science fiction and fantasy? Because, I mean, let's say for argument's sake that you're writing something like <laughs> one of the great examples is well, a lot of the Narnia books, but certainly the last battle, the last C.S. Lewis Narnia book, um, basically the Kalormans, who are essentially Muslims, are uh, all sent off to their own little island to live forever in their own paradise so that we don't have to look at them as, as good Narnians, right? Obviously, that is a product of the time, That's the, and it, it probably says a lot about C.S. Lewis, who isn't the kind of, in my view, the, the shining the shining emblem of all things good that many Christians would have us believe, but let's not get onto that particular path right now. I, I, I can talk about that for hours. But if you're writing, it may be seen by some people that if you're writing fantasy or science fiction, that gives you carte blanche to basically have whoever you want be the villains, whoever you want be the, the good guys or whatever. How does that work in the in when it comes to own voices and I mean do we have to be looking at characters or cultures that we're creating in this world of our own making and go well that looks a little bit like it might be a, an Arabic or a, or a black race or whatever and are we just being racist in a different guise now for example how do you how do you see that working yeah, I, I'm not a, a big science fiction reader, um, but I am aware that there are conversations within fantasy and science fiction that that is the, the power of the genre is to explore things that are deemed uh, off, off topic um, in the real world. But I think taking a step back, it's like any writing process. If you're going to write something, having feedback and readers along the way will hopefully 
catch you out on your biases and framing. Mm. And so you might have that feedback from an editor, um, but also recognising that editors in publishing houses are juggling manuscripts that are coming in to sell into the publishing house along with trying to get people through the pipeline at all these various stages that they might not have that full scope and focus to pick up on what could be problematic components to novels such as Narnia is a great example it doesn't take much reading to understand the allegories and the origins of that creation so even though it's a creation you can kind of it doesn't take much to go, oh, okay, there's some underlying issues here. And in, and in that particular example, I mean, for me, the, the irony on all this is that basically by trying to escape as closely as he could to the allegory he was trying to create, he actually made the Christian worldview that he was trying to promote look worse than it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, as I say, C.S. Lewis is a particular interest of mine and there's, there's much to discuss there. So, um, so, I mean, at risk of sounding ham-fisted, where does it end? Let's say, for example, that I, I'm going to going to channel my inner Andrew Bolt and say, where, where does it end? Oh, and if, Andrew. If Andrew, if Andrew <laughs> is listening, <laughs> hi, Andrew. Um, I doubt that he is, but uh, where does it end? So, for example, I'm, I'm a young adult and children's writer. If I'm writing a scene in any schoolroom in Western Sydney, for example, the old days of writing like Colin Tealy where everybody or let's say um, The Rocks of Honey by Patricia Wrightson. Every kid in the class was white except for one Aboriginal kid called Eustace with the nickname Useless, which is kind of horrible in its own way. But if I'm writing about a, a schoolroom in Western, modern Western Sydney or pretty much modern anywhere in, in most built-up areas in Australia, there's going to be people of a wide range of ethnicities. Let's just start with that. When I'm looking for sensitivity, um, feedback how do i know how far to go with that am i asking well, I would, about the yeah. foods they're eating or the language they're using or the numbers they're using to count i mean what am i what how far am i going with this you're going right back to the start even before the manuscript's written and really thinking about all right i'm setting it in this particular area i've been through i live in the area i recognize that there is that diversity there what story am i trying to tell and just doing the fundamental things as a writer. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's just being conscious of what's my creative process. Am I allowing myself to be influenced by authenticity or am I just making this up? Do I do I kind of think I know what it's like to have that experience? Oh, I reckon I've got empathy and I can imagine it. Or am I checking that my empathy is based on things discussions experiences that i've had so you can instead of viewing it as a what's the the least i can do what's the most i can do if you're truly trying to create art and live a creative life being open to learning about things and your creative process is a really generative place to be in so that you're feeding that information into your work and craft along the way. And if you're having that approach of being curious and kind and empathetic, you're more than likely creating connections with that local community because you're trying to find out the answers to those things, if it is cultural norms and food. So you're already kind of gearing up 
mm. all those sensitivity readers and feedback. And it might not be giving your manuscript to 20 people in the community because that's a big ask of individuals in the community as well. But if you're placing your work in that space, at the very least visit the space, ask specific questions, find out information so you're not just making things up at the expense of that community. And more than likely, they'll identify with it and support it mm. rather than it just becoming, again, uh, a missed opportunity of being curious and engaged. Because to continue to use my own myself as an example in this devil's advocate um, scenario I've just presented, I've spent a lot of time in, in schools across Western Sydney as a grown-up person working in those schools and working with those students. But I don't know what it's like to be a a nine year old kid from you know a, a Persian background, for example, who, who goes to school in Campsie, for example. Mm. Um, does it become a matter of assessing how much input that particular character has into the story, and and or how how would you approach it? How would you approach it? Would you make them the the central voice of the story or would they be a part of the story well I, I guess you know i guess the answer that i would i would give would be that it really becomes a matter of why am i choosing that particular person as the protagonist in my story if if their otherness if you to use that kind of clunky term if their otherness is um central to the drama of the story and, the, and what the story hinges on, then obviously that requires a much deeper dive into identity than if they're just somebody who is delivering the mail from the front office partway through a story. Absolutely. I, did I yeah. get that right? Well, it's not <laughs> about, I, I think it's just showing that you're already thinking about yeah. these things and it requires thought because it's part of the creative process it's not being tacked on but it was probably always a part of your creative process of being mm. like I want to represent the world that I see around me with diversity but I'm going to be careful about it because if I so happen to choose a minority race to represent certain characteristics that are just negative that's not great and that does exist in YA literature of particular um, cultures and groups being represented as being nefarious, untrustworthy, unreliable, all these terrible connotations and broad sweeping generalizations. We can do so much better than that. We're writers, we're creative. We should really be thinking about the process all throughout. So we want to do that kind of first draft we may like whip it out there and we're like, oh, this is a really great character and I'm getting to do this, getting to do that and, and then needed and up. But giving yourself a chance to have a stopgap and you reviewing it with a fresh set of eyes of being like, okay, what are the choices that I might, have I made here? And then inviting a few other sets of eyes because we've all got our biases. There's no doubt about it. We've all got ways of viewing the world um, and if you want to enrich the worlds in your novels, invite the world in as well. Yeah. Okay. So to bring this conversation, which I've, I've found really fascinating, um, to bring it to a bit of a close, how, how, how would you go about 
and I said we we're going to work up to this, but we jumped straight in, didn't we? But anyway, that's okay. Um, um, how do you? How would you go about finding a sensitivity reader? What, what's What's the process there? Is it? I mean, I think I know the answer, but I'd like to hear, hear your version. Well, my hope would be that um, it's not left till the last minute, but it's there throughout the creative process. So that if you are very lucky to have your manuscript picked up by a publisher, you're not waiting for the publisher to say, well, we've got our list of people here and this person ticks the exact box and we'll just chuck it off to them. I think that still needs to exist. I think publishers need to do a good job of building networks because um, it takes time to nourish those relationships. But I also think there's some responsibility on the writers. If you're writing about something, embed that curiosity and connection through your creative process. And people do respect that as well because people love writers. They, they can be suspicious of journalists and whatnot, but the idea that you're going out there and you're making a piece of art, whether it's a novel, a song, a play, and just being honest, like, this is my first time, I haven't actually done this, but I'm really interested in writing a story about X, Y, and Z. Um, is it okay if I ask you some questions about this or that? Um, so starting the research process in a conversational way, it's a very different model of writing that is often taught and perpetuated of the the lonely garret, mm-hmm. um, the lonely writer in a garret somewhere, just sitting by themselves, creating all these worlds. But I would really hope that there's a sense of excitement and inclusion and respect because that's essentially what I hope people are doing, that this isn't a tick box exercise that's when it's actually disrespectful because you're not giving people a chance to provide meaningful feedback, but a sense of respect from the beginning of the process to the end, essentially creating authentic representation means that the stories are better. Mm. Cliches and stereotypes are just hollow and harmful. Antagonism is almost always seen immediately for what it is, right? Exactly. And it doesn't take many readers to pick up on that as well of being like I think that's a bit dodge or maybe you didn't think enough about that or do enough research in in my most recent book which is 1000 Hills about the Rwandan genocide it was co-written with a survivor of the Rwandan genocide and I was and it's heartening to hear what you've said because that that idea of sensitivity as we go was very much a part of our process. I kind of took Noel's story and worked it in with a, a new character, but he was his main contribution to this book was to um, read it for authenticity and and so forth. And occasionally, I would have a have a disagreement with him about you know I need need this, the family that this character is based on to have a water tank, for example, and um, you go, we didn't have a water tank. I go, I know you didn't, but I need this character to have one. So I kind of, there was a little bit of to and fro about how that, that process worked. But I was very glad that Noel had been part of that process when we launched the book and a Rwandan gentleman stood in the doorway, pointed his finger at me and said, who gave you permission to tell this story? And I was able to point at Noel beside me and say, this guy. Um, so, so, I mean... 
at a purely mercenary level, I was glad that I engaged in the own voices kind of sensitivity thing. But but it was it was an interesting exercise, and um, so it's been interesting and heartening to hear the way you've talked about approaching it. So thank you for that. Did you find that creative process? Um different to your usual process? Was there something that you would take away from that experience and do again or do differently? Um, perhaps, no, well, maybe a little, but mainly it was because I was acutely aware of, you know, this, this what I mentioned at the very beginning about identities being intersectional. And I was conscious of the fact that there were so many ident intersectional identities that I was, I was potentially going to tread on if I was wasn't careful and if I wasn't wasn't well careful suggests caution but if I wasn't mindful is probably a better word um you know I'm not black I'm not from Africa I never survived a genocide um I never I was never a refugee I never lived it never lived in a a um, refugee camp I I didn't have to relocate my family to Australia and I didn't have my family threatened and, and so forth. So there's so many things that, and of course, I'm immensely grateful for all of those things I haven't had to experience. But it wasn't just a matter of going, you know, the, the one of my favourite albums is um, Graceland by Paul Simon. But And at the time, Graceland was seen as a real move forward. But now there's a lot of people saying that Graceland is a, is a horrible, horrible own stories misadventure. Um, I'm... I, I'm not of that view. I'm, I'm sort of more of the former view, even if it's a bit naive. But um, this writing about the Rwandan genocide through the eyes of a Rwandan child 25, 30 years later, I, I sense that that could potentially be quite fraught, which is why I was incredibly glad when this man basically stepped up and did exactly the one thing I had been mitigating against. It was almost word for word what I'd played out in my head when he stood there in the doorway, pointed at me and said, who gave you permission to tell this story? And I was able to say, I played out in my mind what would be the case if I hadn't worked with Noel. And I was just like, uh, him, the, the African, the Rwandan guy sitting next to me, who's my friend? So I don't know if that answers your question, but um, yeah, it, was a, it was an interesting experience. And it did teach me a lot, but I, I don't think I'm, I think there's still a lot to learn. And I think that's probably the best place to be. But, um, and that's how I often say it to writers is that it's not like people telling you the right and the wrong way. It's really by enriching your creative writing process and having that feedback, it saves you from that icky feeling of someone asking you at the end, who gave you permission or... Or Why did you, did you make that choice? Yeah. And if you had that information in the drafting phase, you probably would change your mind and do certain things. And it's just really there's particularly from being a part of the disability community, we're just passionate about, and I'll speak for myself, I'm passionate about making sure that there's accurate, authentic representation embedded through literature because we've had hundreds of years of crap representation and not everyone in the disability community feels the desire to write a book but we we have so much expertise to offer mm. and it should be considered as expertise and like you would research by going to the library you would go on the internet include chatting with people and engaging with people as part of that research because it's going to give you 
that incredible detail that will elevate your writing and make it sing because what's in Wikipedia is kind of bizarre and may or may not be right or wrong. But if you're talking to people within the community, you're building those relationships, you will discover along the way by yourself do you feel equipped and confident to continue with this journey or are you starting to discover, oh, actually, maybe I've been at this for a year or two, maybe this isn't my story to tell and maybe I could tell an adjacent story or something else along the way. So and I, don't feel like right much, I don't feel like there's much of an excuse anymore. I mean, look, I when my the first book I wrote for middle grade readers was called Captain Mac and this was back in about 99 and... It was about a, a, a Scottish soldier um, uh, on the Burma Railroad um, who kind of, as as uh, as dementia sets in, he starts to imagine his nursing home as prisoner of war camp. But at the time I did all the research I could do, I thought. I went to the library and at that stage I was bringing home piles of books from Hornsbury Library and you know, I did all the things. And then when I came to write this, the prequel to it, I discovered that the regiment that I had thought was on at, in the Burma Railroad was never on the Burma Railroad. And so I, I kind of see that as <laughs> I see that as being a slightly dodged bullet because I imagine that if I were to make an error like that about any number of other things now, there would be no excuse. Like there were so many opportunities for you to get that right. And I can kind of go, I was 27 years old. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And I was trying to find out from textbooks that I got from my public library. So, so, you know, forgive me. But these days, I don't think there is that excuse anymore, is there really? Well, there's that and recognising that was you emerging as a writer mm. and you're doing your best with the skills and resources that you had. So I would just reassure emerging writers that it is a skill set to mm. engage with communities um, and you may feel like you don't have those skills at the moment um, but you're not going to gain those skills if you don't try to reach out and do that real world research and experience that does come with some privileges if you're mm. say trying to write um, evocatively about Paris and you want to get the Parisian lifestyle right I mean are you going to fly to Paris to get that I mean yes yes I am yes yeah that would be great Definitely. thank you Osco for funding that <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's really just kind of knowing what is realistic and what could be perceived as potentially offensive or harmful material um, and as that comes with experience and time an engagement with your craft so knowing that okay I'm going to try and write about Paris I've never been but what can I do to research that what can I how close can I get as possible I can't fly there because I can't afford it but maybe I can talk to some French people mm -hmm. who have lived in Paris <laughs> maybe I can watch a few films and watch things on YouTube and look at Google Maps and just watch Amelie it'll be fine it'll be exactly yeah fine. I mean <laughs> it's all Technicolor France all the time they just have beautiful sunshine it's great <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't entirely ruled out that I'm going to get a knock on the door from angry, angry Scotsman at some point and say, um, you know, it's been 20, 20, 24 years ago you wrote a book about a Scotsman on the Burma Railroad. Never happened. <laughs> I don't expect it to happen, but I haven't entirely ruled it out, so I'll, I'll keep you informed if that's the case. Um, 
Fiona Murphy, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really enjoyed our chat. Um, I'm glad you enjoyed Daffodil Cottage, and I'd just like to acknowledge the uh, Adess Family Foundation and Katie, who is very generously giving us use of that cottage. And um, thank you again, Fiona Murphy, for talking to us today. Thank you, and thank you uh, for the residency as well. It was wonderful.